Welcome to another episode of Before You Kill Yourself with your host, Leo Flowers. Today's episode is brought to you by Forever Me Apparel. Forever Me Apparel is all about affordable clothing that not only looks good, but feels just as good. They strive to keep the people around the world fresh and in with the newest and some retro styles. They can and will ship anywhere in the world. Mental health is a big portion of what they do. They have donated over 250 pieces of clothing to people struggling, and they don't have any intentions of stopping now. They want to supply everything from head to toe. It's always been and always will be about the people, because without the people, we are just forever nothing. Head on over to Forever Me Apparel to grab a beanie, t-shirt, or bag. Once again, Forever Me Apparel. Today's guest is someone who I've been wanting to have on forever, since day one. Since day one. Uh, He's written a million books. Uh, We have Dr. Thomas Joyner, who is an American academic psychologist and leading expert on suicide. He is the Robert O. Lawton Professor of Psychology at Florida State University. I'm a big Florida Gator fan, but you know what? We're not even going to split hairs on that. Um, and he operates his laboratory for the study of psychology and neurobiology of mood disorders, suicide, and related conditions. He is the author of Why People Die by Suicide, which I've read uh, and have marked up and highlighted and taken notes and referred back to, uh, even though it was written in 2005. And what's cool in his episode, he talks about things he would add and change uh, from that book since he's written it. Uh, he's also written The Myths, of, I can never say myth, th- 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 Myths About Suicide uh, in 2010 and the current editor-in-chief of Suicide and the Life-Threatening Behavior. Um, now, he's also written, uh, his more uh, current book is about mindfulness, which is what we get into and in, which is what we start off with in this episode. We talk about mindfulness and how it's being portrayed and how it and what it actually means. And I think this is really important for a lot of us in terms of uh, who are struggling with anxiety. Uh, but of course, although we, we start off talking about anxiety, we, we very quickly get into mindfulness and stoicism. And, and these two topics are something that are very powerful for people who are struggling with anxiety uh, at this moment in, in these times of uncertainty, which people say that in these times of uncertainty, times have always been uncertain. Like there's never been a point in a time of life history where people are like, this is exactly what's going to happen at Tuesday, 3.43 p.m. Like we, yes, we plan, we schedule, we set goals, but at the end of the day, uh, we we have no idea what's going to happen from one moment to the next, but we just do our best. So uh, we talk about mindfulness uh, to start off the episode and then we talk about uh, the fact that we don't have a good handle on what genes affect suicidality. I, I was really surprised by that. And, and so, yeah, we definitely get into the genetic component of suicidality uh, and also address the idea of does suicidality run in family, uh, uh, run in families. I said run in family, um, but run in families. Uh, and then we get into... Who was vulnerable to burnout? And this is an important question because a lot of people who work in the mental health uh, 
uh, you know, industry, uh, psychologists, people who work at the suicide prevention hotlines, uh, um, encounter burnout. And even if you aren't in a mental health industry, this perspective on what causes burnout is so impactful and so valuable that you definitely want to hear this because this relates to if you're burnt out in your relationship, if you're burnt out at work, what we talk about in terms of, 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 of burnouts and, and burning out uh, is so valuable. So check that out. Uh, and, you know, as I said, he, he wrote the book, Why People Die by Suicide, and we get into changes um, caused by that. And then what's buffering people from suicidality during this quarantine? Buffering as in why, what, what's protecting people, saving people's lives during this time? And then also, how to recruit allies for your treatment, for your mental health, or for the mental health of the people in your, uh, of your family, your friends who might be struggling with mental health. You don't have to, uh, you know, pursue this alone. You can recruit allies, and there are people who are around you who you may not have considered that can help you. Um, and then really what I really love uh, during this episode is he talks about being mission prepared. Um, and, and this is in response to self-care. A lot of people are talking about self-care this, self-care that, and it's, it's, it kind of has a, a selfish component to it. And so we reframe it in, in terms of calling it mission preparedness. And so we go a lot deeper and so what does that mean for you um, and, and for the people around you? So there's so much in this episode. It's power-packed. It didn't disappoint. Uh, um, I'm so grateful that Dr. Thomas Joyner took this time out to join us. And once again, please go to thrivewithleo.com for one-on-one coaching with yours truly. Uh, we, we're all going through something, and there's no need for us to go through it alone. So let's get to tomorrow together. With that said, let's jump into the episode. All right. Uh, I'm excited. I'd, I'd love to start off time as joining. First of all, thank you for joining me. Uh, I've read your book, uh, Why People Die by Suicide. But I'd love for us to start off with uh, one of your newer books, uh, the one on mindfulness and narcissism. And if you could talk to us because... There, the, the word mindfulness is such a trendy word and people just hopping on board and, and using it in, in different ways. What, what's your take on this uh, idea of mindfulness and, and how it's being used? I mean, I, yeah, I think one of the main motivations for that book was the trendy, you know, everybody jump on board type of thing that's going on or that was going on and still is going on. Um, and I thought that was... That needed a response, I felt, um, because there's something very valuable in the original, uh, what I view as authentic, genuine version of mindfulness. But I think what's happened to it is that that's gotten altered and changed and watered down. And really, the book is a complaint. It's a complaint about that watering down and the, and the loss of the original, um, you know, sort of feeling of it. So my understanding of the original is that it's very selfless and the versions that I've become 
concerned about and, and that I wrote about in that book seemed to me very selfish. And I, I think that's a problem. And so the, the book is really kind of a complaint about that problem. So, yeah, when I think about selfless, I think about uh, sacrifice, doing things for other people and, and selfish. It's like you're doing it for the sake of your, your own good and it doesn't contribute to society or benefit those around you or the community in any way. Um, how, are we, how is it that uh, mindfulness is being touted as a, as a selfish uh, uh, thing to do in our society? Well, my understanding of it is, you know, one of the original, you know, basic ideas is that it's important to attend to the moment-to-moment experience in, a, in an open, non-judgmental kind of way. And I think there's a beauty to that idea um, and, a, and a utility to that idea, too, my concern, though, is that my understanding of the original was that that, you know, the, the attention that one was supposed to, to pay was to everything. You know, the, the, the color of the sky and of the trees and of the people around you, they, what they're feeling, what they're saying, what they're thinking, et cetera, et cetera. Never mind the rest of the infinite universe and cosmos, everything. There's so much outside of oneself to pay attention to. And yet the current mindfulness trend seems to always return to paying attention to oneself. And, and that's really the, the piece that they got, that just kind of got stuck in my craw. You know, I really don't specialize in mindfulness. I'm a psychologist. I know some things about it, but it's not my research specialty or anything like that. I really just wrote the book. Just, I just had to get that kind of off of my chest. You know, I, I really appreciate you saying that because, uh, I have friends who are trying to practice gratitude and the way gratitude is being used, at least by most people is um, I hear them saying they're running out of things to be grateful for. And what I realize, what they're really saying is that they've run out of things to, to be grateful for themselves. And they haven't taken a time to say, you know what? I'm grateful that my neighbors are having uh, a, a dinner at home together. Uh, it, you know, never mind you being a part of that. Um, it's just the fact that somewhere in the world, there are families sitting down, having uh, a nourishing meal, having a great conversation, checking in on each other. Uh, you know, grateful that uh, an ambulance can get from uh, the hospital to wherever the emergency is in time to save someone and bring them back. It's like being thankful that the the, the that the, you know, the moon or the sun revolves around, or the earth revolves around the sun, like all these things that are outside of us that have nothing to do with us, but that affect us in some way. Um, and, and when we start to think about the, when we start to zoom out more, think about the big picture and just being thankful that there is a, a Congress or advocates or lobbyists, uh, we start to realize how much more connected to other people in the universe we are. I couldn't agree more. That's really a big part of the book is trying to redirect people's attention, um, whether it's through mindfulness or what I view as kind of neighboring practices like gratitude practice. In all of those cases, I think there's really something potentially beautiful and something potentially useful there. 
as long as it's not used as a vehicle for selfishness. And, and I think that's the problem is that it so regularly becomes that when, just as you point out, there's an infinite number of things to think about outside of the self on earth, you know, never mind in our solar system, never mind beyond that in the infinitude of the cosmos. It's, it's really remarkable to, to prioritize one's tiny, trivial, temporary self over all that. But people do that, and that's what the book is complaining about. How do you practice mindfulness? I don't particularly, uh, to be honest. Um, I mean, I guess to the degree that I do, it would be um, along the lines of what the of what the um, oh, I'm blanking on the the term, but the philosophers I talk about in the book, um, the Stoic philosophers. Forgive me, I just put in kind of a long day. Um, the Stoic philosophers said, and, and it really has nothing to do with being Stoic, like unemotional, like you don't like joyless. That's not what Stoicism meant to the ancient Greeks. Rather, it means, you know, take things as they come moment by moment, focus on what you actually have control over and, and not the things that you don't. And then recognize that every moment's got a lot of value to it because it's so fleeting and it'll never come again. And then the next one, same and same. And that's just how you keep going. That's very similar to what authentic mindfulness, I think, said and and stated. And it's interesting if you read those Stoic philosophers, how there's nothing about, about the, not very much about the self at all. They're much, they're not at all worried about those kinds of, preoccupations, whereas the modern mind, it seems to me, is pretty obsessed with that. Yeah, I, I, I read a lot of uh, Stoics, you know, Marcus Aurelius, and you're right, it was all about the bigger picture and, and how does one conduct oneself, but in relation to other people, everything was in relationship to uh, your family, friends, and, and community. As you mentioned earlier, mindfulness isn't your your main area of focus or expertise, uh, suicidality is. And, um, and I understand that it, uh, you had a member of your family in their life, which is what spurred you. Can you tell us uh, just uh, briefly about that? And then uh, what you're focusing on now today, especially with the coronavirus, et cetera. Sure. Sure. The, you know, the motivation for the, the whole career trajectory going on now 30 years or more, actually, it, it really, there's a, there's a lot to, to talk about. It, but I'd boil it down to two things. And, and one is um, a fascination with the idea of, first of all, of having a self at all. That's actually a pretty fascinating philosophical Thing of what is a self? What does it mean to possess a self? What are, what are the rights and the obligations and responsibilities and the duties of that self in res- relation to other people? And then to imagine that there are some people who decide to take that self and kill it. I just couldn't, I couldn't understand it. And yet it happened frequently enough that it seemed like it really, it really cried out for an answer. Um, and then my own dad died by suicide 
and brought it home very, very painfully. Um, it taught me a lot about about grief and pain and um, and shock and agony. It also taught me a lot about suicide itself. And so those are the two motivations for an entire career dedicated to trying to understand why this happens. And I, I'm not trying to understand it just because it would be intellectually fascinating. I do think it is intellectually fascinating, but that's not the point at all. The point is to prevent people from having to go through what my dad went through and then what my family went through in the aftermath. I wish that on no one. And, and I've been trying to put a stop to it as best I can ever since. I appreciate that. Um, and your your book, Why People Die by Suicide, was such a fascinating read. And um, and it's also a, a reminder of how someone can take their pain and turn it into purpose um, and, and use that to help save other people's lives so they don't have to go through uh, what you or any, uh, or any other trauma someone else might be going through. Um, in that book, you know, it, it seems like it, when we talk about suicidality, it, it feels like it boils down to just a few things uh, where we're talking about either feeling like a burden, like people would be better off without me, or um, they feel lonely and, and disconnected. And, um, and then, but the overarching is that hopelessness of not that things, here's what I just found out is like, it's not so much that things will get worse. It's just that things won't get better. Um, when you when you look back at your your father or or, or the, the research you're doing currently, um, has that changed at all? Because I know the book was written in I think 2009, um, and and so has that changed at all, or or is there are any other uh, additions to that idea? It it really has stood the test of time pretty well. Um, I mean, I, there, there have been some tweaks based on the subsequent research that both that I have done and that other groups around the world have done on the theory. But really, it's remained pretty much similar. I guess the main change would be back then. The, the actual first like appearance of the book was in 2005. So I was working on this, I don't know, 2003, 2000, you know, almost 20 years ago. Um, and back then... I really thought that the capacity to die by suicide, that, that's one of the main contributions of that theory in that book, by the way, is the emphasis on, you know, it's really hard to do this. Suicide's really difficult to actually do. It's super scary and painful, potentially. We have all these ancient mechanisms built into us to prevent us from dying, much less killing ourselves. And so that's one of the first questions to grapple with is that how in the world do people do that? How do they overcome that really ancient basic instinct to preserve life? Um, and so back then I thought that that part of the theory, I, I thought people learned that mostly. In other words, they, they acquired that capacity through experience mostly. And now I still think that, but I think that the role of genetics is is pretty important in that in that capacity. Um, but back then, I might have said, you know, it's probably about forty percent genetics and sixty percent experience. And now, almost twenty years later, I would just flip that around and say, you know, both are still important, but I'd say it's more like you know, fifty five, sixty percent genetics and the rest 
experience. Um, but other than that, the, the ideas have remained pretty pretty stable. When, when you talk about building it up, I you know your book has helped me take my mental health more seriously in that I recognize I was engaging in some behaviors that to others uh, may have seemed trivial. But in a book, you talked about how because it does take so much to build up to ending your life that uh, people actually, um, they, they work up to it. They, they take these steps where maybe they're being a bit more reckless every time uh, you, um, uh, or, and taking more chances and or harming themselves more. Or if they've been abused, they, they, they work up a pain tolerance uh, uh, over time. And I, I recognize I was doing that in some areas of my life. And I was like, oh, I got to I got to like I got to nip this in a bud because I don't want to build up this tolerance. So I, I thank you for that. For That was part of the, the research on suicidality I'd never really read about. Um, but when you talk about the genetic component, um, what genetically are we talking about? I know in a book you talk about serotonin and, and some other drugs. Can you talk more about the genetic component? Yeah, well, back then, it really did seem that the, the serotonin system and the genes that kind of build it, so to speak, it really seemed like those were promising targets back then. And that's another thing that I would probably revise if I rewrote the book, you know, here in 2020. Um, it, it's not that serotonin system, you know, parameters aren't, implicated it's just they're only a very 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 small piece of the incredibly complicated story so with regard to genetics more generally we we actually don't have a good handle on you know which particular genes or assemblage of genes and and what it is they're building or coding for exactly in nervous systems there's a there's just an enormous way to go on that research frontier but what we do know is that is that the something like like the capacity for suicide, or for that matter, suicide itself, those things run in families for sure. And we also know that that the reason that they run for, in families is not having to do with the, the shared environment of the family, but rather the genes that are running in the family. Now, I talk about these sorts of things a lot to general audiences. I'm, I'm pretty familiar with some concerns that pop up, especially in people who, say, maybe lost their, their spouse to, to suicide, and then they wonder, well, what's the risk for my children? And it's a very natural question, of course. And when I talk about, you know, 60% genes, that can make it sound kind of scary to, to, to people in that situation. My answer is to reassure them that, well, there's, there is some increase in risk. Yes, that's true. But it's really pretty minimal. It, it, it takes the number from the, the, way the, the way this is done is per 100,000. That's how the epidemiologists do this is per 100,000. In the U.S., the, the national rate is somewhere in the ballpark of, of 15 per 100,000. That's just for anybody. Let's say it's 15 per 100,000, for just for anybody. If you have a, a first-degree biological relative, like a father or mother or sister or brother, who's died by suicide, that number goes from 15 to maybe 16 or 17 per 100,000. Yeah, it's just an increase, but it's, 
it's not a whopping increase by any by any means. So it's important. I guess my point here is it's important to keep genetics in perspective. That that completely makes sense. I appreciate you sharing that because we know that there is an effect of how the environment can activate certain genes. It's almost like having a cancer gene. We're all walking around with it, but it's a it's about our interaction with the environment that determines. Uh, how that those cancer genes become expressed in our body. And it sounds like it's similar to what you're talking about. If you, if you take a kid whose spouse or spouse uh, whose, whose parent or grandparents have uh, ended their lives, then uh, it, the, the chances of them committing suicide are very small. However, if there's trauma or sexual abuse, or and then they also maybe go off to war, so now there's PTSD and then there's drugs. Now we're we're starting to increase the likelihood. So it's a it's a compound of factors. Is is that what you're what you're alluding to? In part, I mean, it's definitely an incredibly complicated mix. Um, so complicated that there's there's a lot of current interest in, in work that that utilizes machine learning, you know, sort of computer computer algorithms to try to do prediction. Because anything less than that, you know, and that can incorporate thousands and thousands of variables and then all the different permutations between all those variables. It's way too complex for any human mind. Um, That's how complex the prediction of individual suicide seems to be. Nevertheless, um, I think there are commonalities. And and that's what that book is about is, yes, it's incredibly complex, but there still might be some commonalities within all that complexity and and my answer for what those commonalities are are in that book it's it's things like bird you feel like a burden you feel lonely from others and you feel like you're able to do this really really difficult thing now you know that that loneliness to others i think that a lot of people also think you know like there's a misperception of what mindfulness really is but i think there's also a misperception of what uh, loneliness is and that uh, there's this idea that the more friends that we have, the more physical friends or uh, the, the, the more social media friends that we have, it's, a, it's about uh, quantity. Uh, and if I have a thousand friends or a million likes and followers, then I, I, I'm not going to be lonely. If I live in New York City where there's a bunch of people, then I shouldn't be lonely. Is that what we're talking about or is it something deeper than that? It, it, you're definitely on to something really important in terms of the quality of social connection versus the, the the mere quantity. Quality is really the key. And the the other the other thing that's that's interesting here, and I've heard this from many many times from people who have lost loved ones to suicide. They'll they'll hear they'll hear me talk about these kinds of ideas about lo- loneliness and feeling socially disconnected and initially they're puzzled because they'll say things like but you know he wasn't lonely in fact on the day of his suicide i told him i was there for him and that i love him and so did my sister and so did my cousin you know etc and all, that can that can all be quite true and at the same time the person can nevertheless still feel on the inside very lonely and that's the key is what people feel on the inside and that, that's really the one of the many very 
very pernicious things about some of the mental um, disorders that are connected here is that they can they can skew your mind so that you though you really are cared for and loved and connected you don't feel it because the depression or whatever is like is, is is preventing that love and that care from getting through and so it's, it doesn't feel like that on the inside and, and so that's to your point is that yeah that what really matters is that felt quality on the inside of whether you're not whether or not you're connected and whether or not you matter well, you know, and this is so important, especially now, you know, I'm 44 years old and I was reading that, uh, you know, the suicide rates for, for men, especially white, white men, I mean, I, you know, I don't fall into the white guy category, but I'm in that age group where uh, suicide rates uh, tend to go up. And it's because in a, well, a part of what they're saying is that as men get older, we don't make more social connections. We know who our friends were from our childhood or from the military. That's it. That's when we stop making friends. And then as we get older, they just slowly just start dying off. So we're just slowly watching our, our, our friend pool dissipate. And then the other part is that a lot of guys get married who have been married for years, uh, you know, 10, 20 years. They divorce in about their 20s or in their 40s. And their ties to a social connection was through their wife. You know, their their wife's friends were their friends um, and, and they didn't have any other. So, so then when that divorce happens, uh, now they're losing money, they're losing status, they're losing it's too many transitions uh, all at once, which is uh, why I started. I just started a men's group recently and I'm being I've become more proactive. I was like, yeah, I fall in that category for sure of where I'm not I'm not I really wasn't trying to make more friends. I was like, I got enough. But um how how are you um, w- working with people or, or teaching people in terms of uh, feeling more connected and less lonely? Because like you said, it's mostly a mind state, right? It's not a, like, I don't need to like join 12 groups. It's about mentally feeling connected. How do we help people feel more mentally connected uh, to the people in their lives? Yeah, I mean, I have a few pretty simple ideas about it, but, you know, despite their simplicity, I think people tend to forget about them or, or overlook them, especially men. I think there, there is a, there is a pretty pronounced gender difference about how, you know, men tend to take relationships for granted more than women do. Uh, Of course there are exceptions to that rule, obviously, but generally speaking that, that there is a pattern there. Um, this is one of the main points of, of one of my other books on loneliness. It's called Lonely at the Top. And in that book, I made exactly the point you're talking about is that whereas women tend to cultivate their relationships and their friendships over the years and decades, and they grow their f- number of friends, you know, m- men tend to have some pretty close friends from, say, you know, high school, maybe, or college, perhaps, or or that time of life, you know, when you're 15 to 20, 25, maybe. And then they just kind of forget about the question of friendship. And and they don't invest further in it. That's a big mistake. Because fast forward, just as you said, fast forward, like 20, 30 years, some of those friends may have faded away, and you just find yourself 
all of a sudden lonely, especially in the wake of something like a divorce. And so, you know, one thing that I've sort of counseled over the years is, is that those friends from back in the day, those connections from back in the day, th- those are worth keeping hold of tight, nurturing, re- revitalizing, because sometimes you fall out of touch. You know, maybe you weren't even that close a friend with someone back then, but now your interests have sort of shifted and, and towards one another, and you might be really good friends. Now, you know, it's possible reach out and, and see. But the other thing that I really recommend is just real small doses of connection can go a long way with family, with neighbors and neighborhoods, with communities, with religious organizations, with you know civic groups, whatever the case may be, a small bit of reaching out when it's done repeatedly tends to take root and tends to grow and, and, and spread. And so if people just sort of grasp onto that philosophy and really live by it, the relationships tend to grow over the months and the years. And then those relationships can, can be real buffers against all sorts of problems, certainly mental health problems, but also physical health problems and just life problems. You know, when, Life gets hard. It's very nice to have a network of people that you can reach out to for counsel and for help. Yeah, as uh, I've shared with my listeners, I live in LA, but I'm currently uh, in San Diego because of the quarantine, and my my girlfriend lives down here. So I was like, you know, let's let's just uh, post up together down here versus a back and forth, and uh, definitely struggling with loneliness and disconnection. I mean, LA is right there, but it, it, you know, it's a hotbed right now, so I'm not going back. Um, but so I have intentionally been sitting on, uh, we have a house down here, a condo, and just sitting on the stairs uh, and, while I eat breakfast and lunch. And when people walk by, I, I say hello, I just say hi. And just to let them know, hey, I'm, I'm the new guy in the neighborhood, uh, I'm the friendly guy. And if you ever want to say hi, you can say hi. And it's a small thing. And, you know, of course, of course, the first couple of weeks, maybe even a month, you know, people would barely look at me and just, you know, keep walking by. And then the second month, people started saying hi. And then now start people are making eye contact or waving, things like that. My, you know, a new neighbor just moved in. He already gave me a book uh, on Winston Churchill that I'm excited to read. Uh, but I'm also like, it's, I'm also dreading because it's a thousand pages. But it's... <laughs> These, the, the, the point I'm trying to make is that it, re, it does require effort. And I think in this world of where we, things happen seemingly overnight, it also takes time of planting the seed, of just waving, saying hi, and then that builds up into how's your day, and then that builds up to here's a book, uh, you know, a biography on Winston Churchill, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and we just have to give it space to grow and nurture it like, uh, like plants or kids. Exactly. That's a great example. I mean, that's a really great example of how that works. Um, cause it's a small thing, like you said, but, but sustained over, you know, weeks and months, one thing leads to another one, you know, et cetera. And a small thing can start to lead to, you know, more, connection 
And I, I think the, the, the analogy that like gardens or plants, you know, is a good one because that, that's exactly the idea is that you have to daily nurture and water or whatever the case may be, you know, fertilize the, the garden, the plants, or else, you know, you risk them withering away. It's exactly, it's a very similar process here. And, and like with something like, you know, scattering some water or some fertilizer, it's not that hard. Um, you just have to do it for a few seconds, really. Um, but if you don't, then a lot of problems can, can ensue. I think it's a really similar kind of thing. And it's a kind of hopeful thing, too, because a lot of times these kinds of problems feel huge. They feel um, really complicated and really huge. And, and those feelings are valid, actually. But the, the hopeful thing is that the solution doesn't have to be so huge or so complicated. It can be simple, small doses like this. They really go a long way. But the trick is the discipline, the commitment to do them very regularly, daily, if not, I mean, close to daily, if not literally daily, else they won't work. Same with gardening or, or you know, growing flowers or whatever. Thomas, I'd imagine studying uh, suicidality and hearing so many stories and, um, on, you know, from people emailing stories, texting you stories, asking you questions, uh, and unloading un- un- uh, so much onto you. How do you uh, nourish yourself? How-, how do you empty out and, and recharge so that you can keep showing up and fighting this good fight. Uh, I, I've read somewhere that uh, the people who work on these suicide prevention hotlines, like there's a high suicide rate for them. Uh, and and uh, so I wonder how for you, someone who's written so many books and, and so heavy in the fight, how do you nourish yourself? It's a really interesting area. My own view on, on like the burnout kinds of, pitfalls for health professionals and mental health professionals. It, it depends. I would, I would point to two factors that really make a huge difference in terms of who is, who is vulnerable to burnout and who is not. And, and one is just like dispositional, temperamental kinds of things, your, your basic personality. Um, and I might get back to that, but a, but a really key one is do, do you feel effective? in your day-to-day work? Do you feel like you're, you're providing people with solutions um, that actually either solve what they're going through or cure it, or at least take the edge off of it? And if you do feel that, well, then the work, you know, can be very sustaining and rewarding and hopeful, e- even if the, the problems are huge and very heavy, you know, like suicide is. If you feel like you're actually making a positive difference, I don't see how burnout really is a problem. It hasn't been for me because I've really felt that way for my whole career. Um, and, but then if, if, you know, you're not, you know, maybe you don't have access to the training as a mental health professional, you didn't get trained well. I don't know what the problems may be, but if you don't know what to do and you feel helpless in the face of something as heavy as this, I can see how that would lead, lead to burnout very quickly, no matter what you're you know, disposition or, or personality may be. But the other thing I would say about it is that there are, it is important to take care of yourself. I think that's really key. And 
though I'm not the biggest fan of, of movements like, you know, self gratitude or self forgiveness or self care. I, I, I do certainly am a big, big fan of it's really key to get enough nourishment and to get enough sleep and rest and to take a break and, and to hydrate yourself and you know, those kinds of things. To me, that's not really like self-forgiveness or even self-care. It's more like mission preparedness. You know, like I got a mission. I'm trying to prevent people from going through this today, tomorrow. And if I'm not, if I don't sleep, if I don't eat, I'm not going to be able to do that. So that when I, when when it when you put it like that, self-care becomes to me just an obvious thing that anybody would want to do. But when you put it like a lot of mental health professionals do, they kind of make it feel self-indulgent or whatever. And, and there are a lot of there are a lot of personalities who just don't resonate to that. I'm one of them. Um, so, and the last thing I'd say about that is is this this area. I get the question a lot about you know the area is he- definitely heavy and tragic. There's a lot of agony and misery, and it doesn't get to you. And and the true answer is it really doesn't. Uh, and, and the reason is just because I think I have, I have some, I don't have a full solution. That's for sure. If I did, I would immediately publicize it, but I've got some answers that help. And, and um, I enjoy providing those to people who really need them. And, um, and that's very rewarding and very sustaining. So I, I don't, other I don't, I actually don't feel very troubled by it at all. I would if I, if I felt helpless, but I don't feel that way. I love that. Earlier, you talked about if you were to revise the book, you know, you would uh, change what you said about serotonin. Are there any other revisions or additions you would put in a book if you were to write it now in 2020, especially in light of the COVID situation uh, and, and people quarantining? Is it, does it add uh, uh, any layers of complexity to it? It's interesting to think about. I mean, as, as with regard to revising the book, um, it's not that I'm wed to my ideas. I, I, it's not it at all. It's just that these particular ideas happen to have st- stood up pretty well over time, you know, except for like that genetic piece and um, how I might, you know, de-emphasize serotonin system things. And, and, but I still would have emphasized, you know, the brain it's, it's obviously key. It's just so complicated, but mostly the ideas have stood up. So, um, I don't think the book would would look very different. And as for the pandemic, it's really interesting to ponder and I'm puzzled by it because there I'm already in print as of, you know, March of this year and into April and May worrying about the possibility that this pandemic will lead to an increase in suicide risk via things like loneliness because people are staying at home and also things like uh, a surge in gun sales, which has definitely happened in March and April. I think March was maybe, maybe April. I can't remember now. One of those two months, uh, Americans brought, bought, the most guns they've ever bought in the history of record keeping. That's a dangerous combination, more guns and more loneliness. That doesn't sound good to me. However, and then, and then a colleague and I actually looked at national data from you know, census-type data, so very representative of the U.S. population 
from like April 2020 as compared to the same kind of data from April 2019. And sure enough, things like depression and anxiety definitely surged, as you might expect. And yet, I'm seeing subgroups who seem to be doing all right. Like, for instance, here in Tallahassee, we run a, a psychotherapy clinic. Uh, and we had to transition that from, you know, of course, face-to-face psychotherapy to telehealth psychotherapy. So that was one transition among the huge transition that was occurring because of the pandemic. And, and we thought, and, and plus, our, our patients are vulnerable to begin with. Most of them come to see us for reasons related to suicide. So it's a really high-risk group to begin with. And we were worried that all this would make their risk even worse. Makes sense that it might, but it didn't. In fact, their their suicide risk has gone down, and and we think it's because of there's other a, a number of factors. But one is that their ongoing psychotherapy, you know, they can count on us. We're there for them every week, um, and we think that's been a real buffer. Um, I've seen another paper recently where small town America, at least in certain regions of the country, seem buffered. Uh, regarding mental health problems, whereas, you know, some other areas of the country, not as much. So it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a complicated picture overall. I don't know how much I would have, certainly, you know, if I wrote the book in 2020, I'm sure I would have gone into that. But it's a complicated enough picture that I don't know. It, 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 I don't have any simple things to say about it, unfortunately. It's too complicated. The last thing I'll say about it is that when things, when bad things happen, people can surprise you. You know, they can rally together. They can pull together. They can be more supportive than they were. They can be more tolerant and accepting than they were, not less. And and so that might actually mitigate um, suicide risk and mental health problems. So there's some things that might drive it up. There's some things that might drive it down, I guess I would, I guess I would say. Yeah, I, I appreciate you sharing that in terms of the buffers in the small towns. And that makes sense because in a small town, people know each other for the most part, for, you know, for good and bad. And, uh, and so, uh, you know, my mom is from Belize. And if somebody was sick, the, the, the whole neighborhood, the, everybody knew who was sick and they, everybody would bring by soup and check in on you. So you felt that social uh, connectedness. Uh, so I can see that in a small town where like in a big city like New York, nobody's going to hop on a train <laughs> to come see you uh, if they're in Long Island and, and you're in Manhattan or, uh, you know, Brooklyn, et cetera, et cetera. The, um, what was interesting, I read this article it was saying that in some parts, especially like in Asia, they've seen a decrease in uh, suicides uh, in terms of students because uh, well, for a couple reasons. One is that uh, the commute, people aren't commuting the way they used to. So that, that stress of, you know, 32 minutes to an hour uh, back and forth, you know, for most people, they're looking at like a two hour commute. If you're counting, walking out to your, you know, that the, the whole ordeal of commuting. Um, and then two, uh, for students, there's been a decrease, uh, it, you know, it's too early to quite tell, but because they're not being, there's, there's not access to the physical bullying that was taking place in school. Um, and then there's, uh, there's less pressure for grades. Now they're at home and they can get more help 
from parents and, and other people. So they feel more supported uh, in, in that area. I, and I don't know, I haven't read anything about students here, if there's been an increase or decrease, but uh, my girlfriend, she works for, a, she's starting to work for a suicide prevention hotline. And she said that most of the phone calls are from kids between the ages of 10 and 16. And it's about grades and breakups. Um, working at, are you still at FSU? Are you still at Florida State? Yes, that's right. Um, are you, how is, are you seeing, are you seeing, I mean, you know, before the quarantine, did you feel that students uh, were feeling this uh, pressure in terms of grades? And how does that play into uh, feeling like a burden or loneliness in terms of uh, so many, there, so many kids have entered the life over grades? I understand the breakups, but the grades part. Yes, I, I mean that can be really anything that that people use to to assess their own, you know, sense of value. And it, it can be a number of things, but it, for a young person, it can definitely be grades. And also the effects that, that grades have on, you know, like, like the parents. The parents might be really concerned about a child's grades, um, even if the child's not so concerned. But the child may be concerned too. Um, they may be embarrassed in front of their friends, so forth and so on. So it can be a factor for sure, but really anything that, that people use to judge themselves can, can end up being a factor. And and I, you know, I think some of those pressures have, have certainly, you know, softened up a little bit under this pandemic. Um, and some other things I think changed too for the better. Not that this is good. I can't wait for it to go away, but but there are some things. Um, you know, for you mentioned the commute. And so instead of spending two hours, really a very unnatural thing to do, if you think about it, spending two hours in a car with all those fumes around and everything, instead of doing that, people are more relaxed at home, out of the fumes. Maybe they're getting a little more sleep, which is pretty key. You know, things like that. I can see how that would really be a good thing. Connections to family, you know, can can be enhanced if you're around them more. So can conflict, but on balance, probably connections sort of wins out. And then the last buffer type thing that, that occurs to me is under conditions of pandemic, you know, people get, you know, they get they value life, they value health, maybe more than they ever have. And so the, to me, the valuing of life itself and the valuing of, of health is really sort of an anti-suicidal mindset. And so I can see how that all those things would come together to maybe push risk down. But still, I mean, I think we have to be open to both sides of this. You know, people can get more lonely. People are buying more guns. People are buying a lot more alcohol, too, you know. Maybe, you know, people who were in violent homes now are stuck in a violent home. You know, that's a terrible, you know, mixture. More alcohol, more guns, stuck in a violent home with more loneliness. That's scary. So both sides are possible. And I think we, you know, at least in my own work, I'm trying to keep open to both sides and, and recognize that in some subgroups, there may be more risk. And then in other subgroups, there may be less risk. 
Um, in the book, you talked about how sometimes a suicide plan can backfire uh, for people, uh, especially if they've been discharged uh, from an institution. Can, can you talk, are there, are there suicide prevention techniques or ideas out there that, you, that are being touted that, uh, that backfire you feel like are being misused or uh, misunderstood? The only, actually, I mean, there are some things that I think are really, you know, useful. But it, and I can talk about those a little bit in a second. But in terms of the things that backfire, not not really. I mean, the only one ones that kind of feel like that to me, you know, one would be the lack of you know, of of actually taking you know, doctors up or psychologists up on their offers of treatment. That, that's that can, that's going to backfire for sure, especially if you really need it. Um, so that, that occurs to me. There, there used to be kind of a thing in the field where people would, would um, engage in what was called safety contracting, where literally the, the therapist and the patient would sign a contract to the effect that the patient agrees not to kill themselves in the coming days or, or week or what have you. And, and that, that, that's no longer the, the state of the art because um, though it probably maybe didn't actively backfire, it just didn't do any good. And the reason it didn't do any good was that, you know, it didn't tell people what to do instead. How, you know, it just says what not to do, you know, don't kill yourself, but it, it doesn't, it doesn't give people, alternatives like instead of doing that here's a list of things you can do to keep yourself safe and and in a good state of mind and so that's now the state of the art so it's called safety planning and you do all that kind of like brainstorming in advance of a crisis about you know okay how do you keep yourself safe first of all let's just get real practical about it if there's a gun well how about not keeping that loaded how about locking it up do you have a gun lock do you have a gun safe how about storing it in the attic or, you know, somewhere away from like right at hand, or maybe, you know, maybe your brother will take it or your uncle or cousin or something, just temporarily maybe let them take it, things like that. Um, but also, you know, if you get your, in advance of an emotional crisis, what tends to take the edge off of your, of your crisis? You know, is it, is it music? Is it friends? Is it going outside? Is it exercise? Is it, YouTube, whatever, you know, just have a plan in advance, just doing those activities. It won't be a cure. We're not, you know, that's not the point. The point is, you know, getting somebody at a, at a dangerous crisis level, maybe even a lethal crisis level, a few da- notches down to where they can cope and, and survive and, and live on and fight another day, so to speak. So safety planning is really important. The key thing, actually, Mean safety, that idea of like taking the meat, the potential means of suicide, whether it's a gun or a rope or a container of medications or whatever it is, and just making that safer, even a little bit safer can, can make a big difference. And then the, the importance of interpersonal connection, including like hospitals, doctors, psychologists, social workers, all them reaching out as much as they can to vulnerable patients. It doesn't have to be like for an hour long conversation. It can just be a small message along the lines of, you know, I, we care about you. And if you need us, we're here. Here's how to, here's how to call us. Things like that. 
that same theme of, you know, small, small doses, depending on what the thing is, small doses can really have disproportionately large effects. Uh, I, I love that. And as you were talking, I also was reminded of when I asked you about the grades, about I could, I understand how also, because you, you mentioned how um, if someone didn't feel like the work they were doing was effective in terms of uh, being uh, a part of the suicide uh, prevention hotline or, or in this line of work, that it could cause burnout. And I would assume for a student, if they felt like the efforts they were putting in to get an A, or to graduate or to get into school. And, and so they, they felt like their effort was ineffective. Uh, that, can, that can lead to, uh, quote unquote, burnout also. Uh, so I, I'm, I'm, I'm seeing the correlation there. It's about that feeling of, does, is, is, is what I'm doing having an effect on the world around me? Uh, and whether that's physically, intellectually, uh, socially, et cetera, et cetera. Um, that, that feeling of effectiveness. Um, you know, I've always heard uh, uh, that the, you know, make the means a little tougher. If you have a gun, hide the gun, uh, you know, put the pills in, in a lockbox uh, in the gun and et cetera, et cetera. And uh, Malcolm Gladwell in his uh, latest book, Talking to Strangers, he emphasized that he tells a story in about, um, I think it was like, uh, was it Germany? Some part of Europe where all the houses used uh, gas to heat them. And suicide rates were through the roof because people were literally just like shutting their doors and, uh, you know, putting some tiles up under there and then turning the gas on and uh, death by gas, uh, you know, suicide, uh, committing suicide that or completing suicide that way. And as soon as it, they removed all the gas from all the homes, suicide rates dropped by like 70% because, you know, these people who want to end their lives, they didn't seek out another way to end their life. It's just that it was so convenient for, for them to, you know, turn the gas on, put some tiles up on the door and complete it. So this idea of, yes, lock the guns up, make the means inconvenient for you, hide it. Um, in San Francisco, they put the nets, uh, uh, under the bridge and just putting that net and raising the, uh, the guardrails up a few inches higher, that's deterred, uh, reduced, uh, uh, suicide, uh, suicidality off the bridge. So these, these, like you said, it's about small dosage. It's about small dosage in terms of building connection with your community. It's about small dosage in terms of building a resistance, uh, making it just a little bit harder for yourself to access the means to, to end your life. Or if you're living with somebody who is uh, thinking about that, uh, for you to uh, keep them here just a little while longer uh, until we can get them, them better. So uh, every, every bit counts is, uh, is what we're trying to say. Uh, is, there, is there anything, uh, Dr. Joyner, that we haven't discussed that you feel like the listeners uh, should know as we wrap up here? Well, I, I guess maybe, I mean, we touched on it, but you know, the, the, the issue of treatment of, of mental health treatment and, and, and how you go about 
accessing that. No, it is true that there, there are people who can struggle with access. That, that's true. And that's a problem in and of itself, a big problem. And then even for those who have access, there can be a, a problem of getting good quality mental health care. And that's another huge problem that we've got to do better at societally. Having said all that, there, there are treatments that do help. They're not total cures, but they help. And a lot of frontline people know about these treatments and can either provide them or point the way to them. And who I have in mind are primary care physicians. They see a lot of everything. That's the nature of their job. Name it. They see it, including things like depression and anxiety and suicide risk and things like that. And they can either provide some help through medication on that themselves, or they can point the way to somebody more specialized. So that's one thing that people tend to take. They either they either take it for granted or they don't really realize that, you know, like a, a primary care physician can do that kind of thing, but they can. But, you know, not everybody goes to the doctor very frequently. And, and, and then so another kind of frontline idea that I think can be really helpful or clergy people, you know, a lot of them, you know, it depends on whether you're religious or not, if you are, which kind of, you know, religion, but across, you know, religions, the clergy, they tend to be pretty aware of these kinds of, these kinds of problems and people go to them with these kind of problems. And so they get pretty experienced at figuring out, you know, where to point people in terms of resources and help and treatment. So I guess I would say those two groups, you know, keep those in mind as as allies to help you cope with some of these, you know, pretty common problems that many, many people and many, many families grapple with. Uh, you know, I never thought about that. That's a, that's a great insight to have. Of the, These are people that you can talk to, physicians, clergy, uh, even uh, teachers, uh, touching base, but, but most often parents will have contact with them. But Rarely are we, you know, utilizing our, our clergy uh, personnel or uh, physicians as um, as allies, as you say, uh, to help us uh, in, in this fight uh, for mental health and just get, gaining insight as to what's going on. A lot of times uh, kids struggle with talking to their parents, but they might talk to the priest or they might talk to the physician or the school teacher or even a crossing guard school. You know, I remember uh, in school, the crossing guard uh, was uh, the person that we always talked to. I mean, it was always in passing, you know, you're trying to cross the street, you're not trying to hold up traffic, but over, over time, over years, the crossing guard gets to know the kids, the parents, and, uh, and can see, uh, you know, moods change and what kids are coming in with and et cetera, et cetera. So there are all these points of contact uh, and all these different people who are having uh, contact with your kids um, that you can use to help you get a, a, a 360 on what your kids are going through. Uh, but, but also in your life, there, there are people in your life, if, if you're an adult with no kids, that um, you can use as a gauge for what's going on. Like my girlfriend the other day was like, you got to take a nap, she, you know, talking to me. And she, she recognized that I'm a much different person. Uh, when I don't nap, <laughs> I'm a huge, I'm a huge napper. And sometimes I fight it because I, I, I want to go, go, go. 
but if I don't nap, I'm not as effective as as you know. That seems to be the the through line on this episode uh, in terms of effectiveness. So I got a nap, and uh, if we want to show up and uh, be mission. I forgot what you said. Um, yeah, mission, um, like mission, mission ready. preparedness. Yeah, mission, mission ready, ready right. mission preparedness. I love that it has a a tactical military uh, feel to it. But uh, and it also reminds you that you're, what you're doing is not just for yourself. If you think about it in terms of a mission, uh, you're, you're, you're doing it to save not only your life uh, and take care of your life, but the lives of the people around you. Uh, Dr. Joyner, I, I appreciate you taking this time for, for being on this episode. Uh, please plug all your things. Where can people find you, your books? Um, and I'm a Florida Gator fan, so I was kind of hesitant to have you on, but you know, <laughs> uh, like I said, I'm thinking about the mission. <laughs> well, as for the Gators, I'm, I'm a huge college football fan and, and huge college sports fan and huge Florida State fan. I've been here for almost 25 years. Both my boys have, have, were FSU uh, graduates, so it's a it's a healthy, it's a healthy rivalry to be sure, and hopefully it'll be back on in in twenty twenty one. They're not playing each other this year. Already decided um, because the SEC went all SEC conference games, so that's interesting. But um, yeah, no, thank you for having me. I've enjoyed I've enjoyed this very much. Thank, thanks for asking me. This has been great. Um, and then last question, I ask this of all my guests because I imagine that. There is one person listening in who may be on the precipice of ending their life. Before you kill yourself, what would you say to them? I would say stay. I would say stay. The, 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 this, this, is, this is something that you might think is, is going to be better for everybody. It's not. It just, it just seems that way. It just feels that way. And it can feel that way really convincingly and really deeply. That's wrong, though. It, it's going to be bad for everybody, horrible for everybody, agony for everybody for decades. These, these suicides reverberate in families across generations. It, it's just really, really awful for people. I do understand being that desperate. And I do understand being in that level of a crisis. And I do understand the idea of, well, that's one way out of a crisis. Okay, but there's another way. Reach out. There's resources like the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, 800-273-TALK. Soon, it looks like that's going to be replaced by a a three-digit hotline, 988. That's not ready yet, but that's coming. Right now, though, it's 800-273-TALK. There's resources like the crisis text line for people who rather text and, and talk to somebody. We talked about clergy. We talked about family doctors. We talked about friends and, and family members. Just reach out and 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 keep and keep reaching out and just stay. Uh, life is an incredible miracle, and it just really, really it it, it, it just really. It's worth thinking about just staying and reaching out. Dr. Thomas Joyner, I appreciate you taking this time out. Thank you, listeners, for tuning in. Remember, this podcast is not a substitute for you reaching out, getting help, 
for you calling a 1-800-273-TALK or 1-800-SUICIDE. There are all those numbers are listed not only in this episode, but they're listed in all of my episodes and not only the local numbers, but we have international numbers. There's talk, there's text, there's group. uh, There is there is someone who is willing and able to listen to you so that you feel understood um, and, and we can get you to stay uh, for another day. Um, you can always go to thrivewithleo.com for one-on-one coaching with yours truly. Let's get to tomorrow together. Thank you so much, Dr. Joyner. Thanks for having me. As a reminder, today's episode was brought to you by Forever Me Apparel. Forever Me Apparel is all about affordable clothing that not only looks good, but feels just as good. They can and will ship anywhere in the world. They have donated over 250 pieces of clothing to people struggling, and they don't have any intentions of stopping now. They want to supply everything from head to toe. It's always been and always will be about the people. Because without the people, we are just forever nothing. Head on over to forevermeapparel.com to grab a beanie, t-shirt, or bag. Once again, forevermeapparel.com.